Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Everybody, hello. This is Emma Graney, Press Gallery host, with another quick reminder to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever your little heart desires. Any questions, comments, or concerns, shoot me a note, egraney at postmedia.com if you want to send me an email, or you can tweet me at Emma L. Graney. This is the second last episode of the year, the penultimate episode, if you will. Next week, look, you can look forward to our yearly news quiz. Always a fun time. But for now, enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I'm your host, Emma Graney. It is Friday, November 7, 2018, and this is the Oil, Oil, Oil and Trouble edition. It was kind of like <laughs> Boil, Boil, Oil and Trouble or Oil, Boil and, you know, that witch thing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Am yeah, I being we, really Bringing cheap? Shakespeare into the podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we strive to educate. <laughs> With me today in Calgary. Chris Varco, how are you, mate? I'm doing great. Excellent. Pleasure to have you on again this week. A couple of things happening in Calgary, so, oh, how exciting. Uh, Dave Breckenridge, how are you, mate? Really good. Excellent. Yes. And Keith Gerine, running late into the studio. I am. Yes. Apologies. <laughs> Public shaming. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> it's a good morning. <laughs> so... A few things on the table this week that we're going to get to. We are, of course, going to be talking about the cut in oil production uh, and the reaction to that plan. We're going to talk briefly about Prab Gill, the MLA for Calgary Greenway, why he was in the news and why another Calgary constituency is in the news, specifically Calgary East and one Peter Singh, who is accused of some pretty, pretty interesting stuff. And finally, that's a wrap. Session has entered. We'll have a very quick look at the highs and lows, highlights, lowlights, the tears, the joy, the roller coaster of emotions that was the 2018 fall session. Let's get started with oil. Now, Chris, um, I assume you were following this as it happened over the weekend, right? I was indeed. Let's go through quickly what just happened before we get into uh, our thoughts and feelings on the whole matter. So Rachel Notley announced a plan there on Sunday. What was it? She announced that the province will reduce, will have a mandatory curtailment of oil production of 325,000 barrels a day. And that will take place between January 1st and likely to the end of the first quarter. And then after that, they, we will probably see a reduction of about 95,000 barrels a day through the rest of 2019. That is roughly an 8.7% cut in oil production from the province. And of course, the idea behind this is to try and bring the market back into balance because there's not enough pipeline capacity to take all of the crude that is being produced in this province. And the idea here is to try and increase the price for Western Canadian oils. All right. Now, this wasn't really a surprising move, was it? It was something that has kind of been bandied around as a potential option. Yeah, I think this has really got legs in the last six weeks. And I think by heading into last weekend, it was clear that they were going to move. The question, I think, in many people's minds was how much oil were they going to take off the market and what were there going to be the conditions in, uh, around it, how they were going to regulate it, who it was going to affect it. And, and that's what we saw on Sunday. 
What has the reaction been uh, from the business community, or the, I guess the oil and gas sector down in Calgary? Uh, I would say it's mixed depending on who you are. Largely, the producers are in favor of this. These are the, the straight, what we call the E&P companies, the ex- mm-hmm. exploration and production companies. They wanted to see this happen because they're right now, are they've been cash flow negative, which means they're losing money for every barrel of oil that they were producing because of this horrendous differential. On the other side, we had the large refiners, and I'm thinking now of Husky and Suncor, uh, Imperial Oil, who make larger profits in their refining operations if they can buy oil cheaper. And so they uh, did not favor this. They thought the government should just leave the market alone, let the invisible hand of the market, as Adam Smith used to say, uh, take the unprofitable barrels out of the market and it would resolve itself. They are not happy. I bet they're not happy. Yeah, you're not going to be happy when suddenly you're losing a a shit ton of money, are you? I suppose. The government's picking winners and losers, there's no doubt. But the government was saying, uh, you know, overall, when we look at this from the province of Alberta and the fact that Albertans own this resource, it makes no sense to give this non-renewable resource away for next to nothing. So they decided we're going to have to act for on the behalf of Albertans. Yeah, there didn't really seem to be another option, at least in the short term. I, obviously, Rachel Notley has talked about uh, buying more rail cars. Uh, that, apparently, they are going to go through with that, but the first of those rail cars won't show up for another year. Full capacity on those rail cars won't show up for another year and a half. Um, the federal government doesn't seem too inclined to help with that in any way right now. No pipelines are coming online until Enbridge is line three a year from now. So in terms of short-term options to actually reduce the differential, this was about it. And, you know, Rachel Notley did have some political cover because Jason Kenney and uh, the Alberta Party, Stephen Mandel, all uh, supported a production cut. We're calling for it in advance of Rachel Notley making that decision. So you do have this kind of rare moment of political harmony where they all agree on, you know, what has to be done. There were some differences in terms of... Derek Fildebrand, he doesn't agree. That's true. I forgot about (laughs) Derek. (laughs) You never forget about Derek. That's right. You're right. He was was not in favor in this. He he wanted the uh, the market to decide. That is the Freedom Conservative leader, of course, which kind of fits into their whole shtick. Yes. But otherwise, general political consensus, uh, which doesn't normally happen in this province unless <laughs> there's some kind of natural disaster like the Fort McMurray wildfire or the uh, flooding in 2013 in southern Alberta. Uh, in those moments, you know, people kind of put aside their differences and say, OK, this is what we have to be doing. Uh, let's support the government. And here we are again with another crisis, not so life threatening, but another crisis nonetheless, where the parties are more or less in agreement. So we can just skip the election and everyone is going to work together now going forward. That's exactly We're all on the same how that's going to work. Is that, is that oh, how that works how now in Alberta? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really lovely province here. Everyone's suddenly getting along. Wow. There's nothing nothing mean being said about anybody all at right. all. Podcast over. Again. <laughs> Our work here is done, folks. And they dusted their hands and walked away. It's the spirit of giving and the holiday miracle. <laughs> it, <it's>, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, is, it is quite something to see the parties in agreement on something that presumably a couple of years ago would have been laughable, right? The the province saying, no, no, we're just going to help. We're going to be like uh, OPEC and we're going to curtail production <laughs> to help our bottom line. That would have been nuts two years ago or five years ago. Um, five so, months ago. Five months ago. So, well, <laughs> the Alberta party says they were calling for it five months yeah, ago. Yeah, I'd uh, still like to see the evidence, but. <laughs> but they, so they, they it, it does say a lot about how serious this issue is for Alberta and Albertans. It also uh, says how serious it is. Uh, an issue for the NDP in their re-election because they're kind of hanging 
trying to hang their hopes on every last uh, possible thing they can going into the spring election. And this uh, obviously is an important issue for Alberta, but it is also an important issue for them electorally. And of course, Rachel Notley headed to the First Minister's Conference in Montreal today. I believe that meeting is happening. And we had a quick chat with her uh, before she boarded her plane to fly out. And she kind of said, you know what, the car that's going to pick me up at the airport could well be powered by Saudi oil. And that needs to stop because she was really pushing to get oil more onto the agenda because it was kind of on there, but it was only this tiny little item. And she was like, "How? we don't even need to talk about labels on Apple vodka. We don't need to talk about stuff that's already happened. We need to talk about oil. And Doug Ford had said the same thing. I believe there are other voices like um, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan as well. They were all pushing to get this on the agenda. Of course, Doug Ford, then the Premier of Ontario, turned around and said, and if it doesn't, I'm going to throw a tantrum, run out the room. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say that, but that was for all intents and purposes what he meant. But it was interesting to see um, Rachel Notley take that line of my car could be running on Saudi oil because that is such like that's the line that the conservatives here have taken forever. That whole ethical oil Ezra line, Levant, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an Ezra Levant thing. That's a Brian Jean thing. Then that went into a that's a Brad Wall thing, a Jason Kenney thing. Like that's not a. It's not a notly thing, but now it is. Well, the funny thing is there there's a group in Ontario called Ontario Proud that tried to get an oh, anti-Saudi yeah. oil ad put on trains in Ontario. I, I can't remember the specifics of where they wanted these ads, but they were told, no, it's discriminatory against this, against Saudis, <laughs> and so we won't run it. But you have politicians who are delivering that same message that Canadian oil needs to be the focus. And I think, doesn't it also speak, I think, in many ways to the magnitude of the crisis that not only do you have virtually all politicians in this province aligning, you've got the oil patch asking for intervention. You've got Rachel Notley and Scott Moe on the same page. I mean, I think what it is, is the realization that we're selling our oil at so cheap and it's having such a devastating economic impact upon the province and on Western Canada that this commands national attention. And we even saw the Bank of Canada this week not increase rates, interest rates, because of this very issue. So I think there's a sort of a, a coalition here of people understanding that somebody's got to address this. We, we can't just have things like curtailment policies or rail car policies to, to get at this. We, we need to get pipelines built. Yeah, I'm interested to see how much of a discussion this does become at the Premier's meeting because probably should be on the agenda. I mean, I think that's a fair call. I'm surprised it wasn't. And I think it's the excuse that the PMO and the prime minister were giving that, oh, you know, it's we're going to talk about competitiveness and it can fall under that umbrella. I, it it no. seems like a joke. <laughs> no, like put it on the agenda. Yes, we are going to discuss energy issues. I know that... Um, Doug Ford and Scott Moe are trying to make hay out of the carbon tax and they want a broad discussion on the carbon tax. I think that's them trying to score more political points than anything. But I think that the oil issue is goes beyond politics here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you've got everyone on the same page yeah. from vastly different parties, it absolutely does. I want to move on to what's happening down in Calgary. A couple of things. Well, one thing happened up here, I suppose, but it's related to Calgary. Oh, I'm just... I'm being obtuse again. That's the second time I've used that word about myself today, this obtuse. morning already. Yeah. Wow. So I guess that shows you where my head is at. TGIF, just, am I right? Maybe I just learned a new word yesterday. I've decided <laughs> to use it in all times. Now, I know, Vako, you've been following the first one of these. So in Calgary East, there is a, a UCP candidate, right? He was nominated, Peter Singh. Tell me a little bit about what happened here, because this story is pretty nutty. Yeah, so news emerged this week that the candidates who had lost 
during the UCP nomination battle in Calgary East back in November 3rd, had all signed a letter to the UCP uh, asking for them to investigate what they see, what they say are allegations of dozens of constituents, I believe it's more than 100, who have alleged, and this is not proven, but who alleged that they were offered gifts or money uh, in exchange for their votes. Uh, to go towards Peter Singh. And some of the allegations, you know, range from being offered everything from chocolates from people who are working on Singh's campaign, everything up to cash, I believe up to $100. So the the four candidates who lost, or four of the candidates who lost, which includes uh, Andrew Chabot, who's a former Calgary uh, alderman and ran for mayor, and Jamie Lull, who I think many people in provincial uh, PC circles would remember uh, his presence, uh, they said that the party's got to investigate. And Jason Kenney came out uh, at near the end of the week and said, yeah, the party will take a look in, into this. Yeah, that was on uh, on Thursday. Um, he had a press conference uh, for session end, actually, here in Edmonton. And he was asked about this these goings on, like, well, what are you going to do about it? And he went, you know what, we take all these allegations very seriously. We're going to have an internal best investigation. But then he kind of turned it around and said, the thing is, you see, we have so many open nomination contests here. We have so many of them. This kind of thing is inevitable, but we do take it seriously and we are looking into it. Um, to which Twitter, well, my Twitter feed anyway, was just like, oh, it's inevitable to have people buying votes. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> What's been the reaction to this down in Calgary? Well, the allegations are so beyond the pale of sort of normal uh, nomination fights. I mean, everybody knows that nomination fights get intense and, and then sometimes things go over the line, uh, you know, but this is is really seems like if these allegations are true, they are so across the line that you have to wonder whether the police are going to investigate. You have to wonder whether the party is going to hold another nomination uh, meeting here. I mean, when you're being, when people say that they're being offered $100 in cash to vote in a nomination fight, I mean, that's beyond the pale. That is just so grotty and it smacks of old progressive conservative type uh yeah. politics I, I it's interesting to see jamie lal this would be the second uh time he's raised a stink about uh, an issue with the nomination fight i understand he, he ran for a pc candidacy but then the pcs appointed somebody else and disallowed his candidacy and he raised a stink right and into the jim prentice uh, uh days yeah that, yeah that was a very high profile battle down here and i have to say jamie lal has not really been sort of the point guy on this andrew chabot uh the former alderman and the former mayor candidate has been out there speaking out about this issue but it definitely has got people's attention it just seems like every week though we are getting another sort of scandal or something having to do with a, a ucp nomination now most of those have had to do with uh people who wanted to become the candidate and, and were disqualified this is somebody who actually did win so i think there this one does take on a sort of a different color but it shows you how tense these races are because in a lot of ridings in the province calgary in particular Southern Alberta in particular, um, if you win the UCP nomination, you have a very, very good chance of actually being the MLA, right? Because of where, where the polls are right now. So you can understand why there is such a fight for this, but uh, people have to play by the rules. And, and it does seem like uh, there are a few that uh, that are not or or consorting with, with those who, who uh, may not be uh, helpful to the UCP cause in, in the end. Well, that leads very nicely to our next topic, Keith. Nice segue. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Speaking of hotly contested races and uh, perhaps doing things one should not, Prab Gill, who is currently the independent MLA for Calgary Greenway, he was the UCP MLA, but he was 
turfed out of the party over the summer for allegations of stuffing ballot boxes and basically misappropriating votes. Now, this all happened months ago, and Prabh's been sitting quite happily, it seems. Maybe not happily. He's been sitting anyway in independent corner, um, kind of in the very, very back corner. Kind of goes him and then Robin Luff and then Derek Fildebrand in the back row there. Um, But he got up and used a point of privilege in the House, which in itself is incredibly rare. It's not something that happens very often in Alberta, because last week, Um, Brian Mason and uh, Shay Anderson, two NDP MLA's ministers, got up and said, whatever, Prab, you're the one who stuffs ballot boxes. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist of it. Now, Prab Gill called a point of order. Um, It was ruled out of order, but he took the opportunity to get up and he said he wanted to get into Hansard what really happened. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Then he proceeds to absolutely rail on the UCP and Jason Kenney and just say that the whole thing was rigged, it's a sham, and b- accuse Jason Kenney and uh, UCP operatives, is the word he used, um, of backroom dealings and, quote, crooked politics. And he said that he was told he could only run in, quote, unquote, ethnic Indian writings in Calgary. He wouldn't be considered for a white writing. So he's alleging all this um, racism and backroom dealing in the UCP. It was a very interesting time. I'm not going to lie. Now, Dave, you have thoughts. Well, he's not. He's not the first MLA who's been bounced from the party to raise concerns about backroom dealings and being told you can't run in a specific area. Derek Fildebrandt did the same thing. He said that the UCP. Uh, he was told by the UCP that he couldn't run in a newly redesigned redrawn riding because they didn't want him running against uh the deputy house leader or the deputy leader leader, yeah Yeah. um they didn't want a white guy running against a woman of color are these allegations true he you know he he did it on a point of privilege in the house where he can get it all on the record yeah he also named names which you can't do outside the house that's how you get sued yeah so we don't (laughs) want to get sued no um (laughs) but are there, is there truth to these allegations? Is it, as the UCP says, sour grapes? I suppose maybe somewhere in the middle there's the truth, but it doesn't paint the best picture of the UCP. And it also quite makes, you know, Prab Gill and Derek Fildebrandt were happily cheerleading this party up until the party they turned were. on them, right? Yeah, and these allegations only come out once you've been turfed out of the party, right? In Fildebrandt's case, it only came out once he was he was told he had no path back to be in the UCP. And in Prab Gill's case, he was to, he left in the summer or was pushed, whichever way you want to look at it. I don't think he had much of a choice but to leave. And he's been independent now for quite a while, but he just wanted to put the record straight on Hansard, so he says. But what's interesting, um, I got my hands on a copy of the uh, report that the UCP got a retired judge, Ted Carruthers, to actually kind of look into what happened. And the way I read that report, and uh, Keith, you read it as well, um, it seemed like the judge kind of reached this conclusion that it was a bit he said, she said, but on the, quote, balance of probability, um, he believes the UCP volunteer who was at the table and said she saw Prabgill take a whole bunch of presidential ballots and take them out of the room rather than believing Prab Gill who says he never did anything wrong and he'd had a knee surgery and he was shuffling around at that point anyway so he couldn't have done what he's alleged to have done. What did you make of that report, Keith? 
Yeah, I, I didn't, didn't look great for Prab. It did not look great for Prab. So yeah, you're right. It was sort of a it did sort of rest on the the observations of this one volunteer who said she saw Prab Gill's swipe ballots off a volunteer's table, take them away. Uh, she went and confronted him and he returned some of the ballots. Yeah, he opened up a manila folder that he was holding and gave back um some ballots, but it wasn't the president ballots. So it, for, for right. context, it was at a constituency association's founding meeting um, for Calgary Northeast. And the idea was if you have control of the board, at least this is the theory about why this all happened, is that if you have control of your constituency association board, then you're more likely to be able to win the nomination. The thought then was, well, Prab Gill picked up the presidential ballots so that he could vote for the guy that he saw as supporting him. Right. Right. Yeah. So sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. And I mean, the judge in this case who looked at it, I, it was a little bit more than a he said, she said. So I think there was some supporting evidence that uh, that supported her version of events over Prop Gill's version of events. Some some things like uh, the expression on her face uh, that other volunteers noticed after this had allegedly occurred. The fact that um, there were more ballots that had been uh, stuffed <laughs> than had actually been uh, given for for, yeah. for, for for votes, including some ballots that had not uh, been initialed there properly. Were Fourteen that weren't initialed, oh, and they right. were all cast in support of the guy who was supporting Prab Gill. That's right. So it doesn't look good for Prab Gill. Now, this is an internal investigation. We don't exactly know how it was done. Prab Gill suggests that there were key witnesses that were not interviewed. He Mm -hmm. says he wasn't interviewed, I think, as well, although that seems to be contradicted in the report. It seems as though he sent an email to Ted Carruthers, who was looking into it, but I think he didn't feel like he was listened to or... Right. And he alleges that the party sat him down, gave him essentially three minutes to review the report Mm. and then uh, sign a document that said essentially that he would leave the caucus uh, or or face, you know, uh, face their wrath, essentially. Uh, So, you know, what's true, what isn't, it's hard to say. But uh, if this judge has any credibility, um, it it doesn't look good for Prab Gill that he probably did not uh, did not play fair in that particular uh, board and presidential election. It's curious here though that here Mr. Gill voluntarily left the caucus and now a few months later he regrets it and he calls the the, the Carruthers probe a sham. Uh, and, you know, it also comes at the same time that we've got this sort of cadre of loosely affiliated MLAs sitting in the back, whether it's Robin Gill or Derek Fildebrand or Prab Gill, who are now spending their, their final days maybe as MLA attacking their former parties. Uh, p- apparently, they don't want to go quietly into the night. No. <laughs> <laughs> it makes good headlines for us. I mean... <laughs> it does. It's fun. There is something to Jason Kenney's point that... Some nomination races can get messy, and if you're a party that appoints most of their candidates or has uncontested nominations, that you're not going to have these issues. On the flip side, though, it doesn't make the party look great. Like in a general election, the worst you're going to see is people stealing other parties' signs or or materials. Like this, <laughs> right? But this is this is the kind of thing that you don't want to see when you're when you're talking about nomination contests. So it. Yeah, it's Prab Gill burning things down on his way out the door, possibly, but um, I don't know. It's not a good look at all for the UCP, regardless. It doesn't, it doesn't, 
hang well on them. All right, uh, Varko, I know you have to go do an interview right now, mate, so I will let you hightail it out of the studio in Calgary. Thank you so much for joining us, talking us through oil, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Anytime. All right, now, it was, of course, the end of session this week. (laughs) You're so sad. I know. It's kind of like the Super Bowl is over if you're into football. I assume I don't understand football. Yeah, but now you get to sleep, so. Yeah, that's true. So that's nice. <laughs> so um, the fall session, how did you think it went, Keith? Did you have a fun time, funsies? I did have a fun time. It was, it was your my, first session as a columnist. It was my first session as fun. a columnist and first session covering the legislature in about five years. So it was interesting to be there. You know, it was interesting. I, I can't remember a session where the actual legislation, I think there were like 12 bills passed and some important ones. But I can't remember a session where the legislation took such a back seat to what else was going on. And I'm talking, of course, about the oil price crisis and all the, the drama around that. Robin Luff, um, you know, all in the background of is this going to be the last session? Are we going to have a spring session? Is this Brian Mason's farewell, Richard mm-hmm. Starkey's farewell? Um, you know, when's the election coming? All of that going on, um, you know, this anger between Ottawa and Alberta. Uh you know, the legislation got very little attention out of all of that. I just thought that was kind of a bizarre thing. Yeah, it was very strange. I hadn't really thought about it like that, but that's exactly what happened. (laughs) (laughs) It was like there were all these sideshows and it was like everyone was in the sideshow tent rather than the main tent with the, you know, the lions and the ringmaster. Everyone's just out looking at the freaks outside instead. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's absolutely true. But I mean, look, in terms of the legislation that that was passed, there were a few, you know, important ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That I I think probably didn't get enough attention. Um, There there was a bill on post-secondary to cap tuition. Uh, and give the minister more power there over over tuition and fees. Uh, there was a, a bill that will uh, install much harsher penalties for health professionals who commit sexual abuse. There was stuff around the management of pension plans, a new funding arrangement for Calgary and Edmonton, uh, raising of ACE rates, uh, changing of uh, election rules, uh, financing rules in municipal elections. So some things that are actually going to have an impact down the road. It's just, uh, you know, if you asked, I think, the average person what happened (laughs) during this session, uh, not many of those things would come to mind. Um, Yeah, I think that uh, everything you just said, Keith, is definitely true. You know, we... Uh, we're talking more about the oil price crash. And as we just talked a lot about a few minutes ago, UCP, um, bozo eruptions or scandal. Um, and obviously Robin Luff. One thing that I thought was interesting, the session was, um, the government backing off its, uh, beer program. Oh yeah. The one that caused them so much trouble. They came in and they decided to change the beer markup structure. And so they had one for local brewers and one for uh, or Western Canadian brewers and one uh, for other all other brewers. And then that was struck down. So they had to go back to the drawing board and then they created one beer markup for everybody, but then was giving local brewers a grant. And that was deemed uh, not proper. And and so they were facing court challenges and there, there was an injunction against it. And so they just said, okay, forget it. <laughs> forget it. We're just going to go back to what the Tories had originally a few years ago where they have a lower markup for brewers producing under a certain threshold and then a higher market for everything else. But what was funny was that was deemed unacceptable to the industry at the time because brewers from elsewhere uh, where there were stronger craft brewing industries were flooding our market with beer and it was hard for startups to get a foothold in the market. There were other issues at play that kept startups from getting a foothold in the market, including... uh, 
minimum production quotas to begin with. You had to produce a certain amount of be able to produce a certain amount of beer and the province lowered that years ago. So it is, I, I found that interesting and it, that we're kind of back to the future on, on beer policy, but at least the province has hopefully got that sorted and hopefully it still helps now that the craft brewing industry and distilling industry has really gained a foothold locally that we'll see it continue to foster now that we've got the tax issue sorted out and rightfully so the province has decided to, um, challenge Ontario's beer selling practices. So Ontario. Yeah. So, you know, doing what many people said they should have done years ago instead of creating an uncompetitive market here, challenging uncompetitive markets elsewhere. And question period itself wasn't overly exciting this no. session either. It seemed to be always like pipeline, 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 oil, pipeline, pipeline, real crime, real crime, real crime, pipeline, 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 real crime. And the UCP didn't pound on any desks. No, they didn't pound any desk. And in fact, Jason Kenney said yesterday in his um, session end press conference, it marks a year since his team hasn't been desk thumping and has been very um, well behaved. But it also came mere hours after Tani Yao, one of the UCP MLAs in Fort McMurray, apparently gave one of Sarah Hoffman, who is the health minister, gave one of Sarah Hoffman's staffers the finger in the hallways of the legislature and said, pass that on to your minister. So she... um. She she had a rail against Tani Yao then. She's like, you know what? He could give me the finger if he wants. I can hold my own. Don't do it to my staffers. That is inappropriate. That's Bush League stuff from, <laughs> from the uh, MLA for Fort McMurray. He, that he, is just- he did apologize on Twitter. I'm not sure you know that, how much better that makes it, but uh, for the record, he, he did apologize. It's just, why would you even it do was that such in the a first place? Thing. Well, remember Michael Connolly, one of the NDP MLAs, he flipped the bird to the Wild Rose, I think back back when it was Wild Rose. And we asked Sarah Hoffman, was like, yeah, but Michael Connolly did that. And she went, no, but that was to an MLA. That's very different than to a staffer. Staffers, you know, leave staffers alone. Like, be nice to the staffers. That's a fair point. Yeah. But it's just, you know, <laughs> be adults. Everybody at the legislature, if you're listening, act like adults. Act like you, like, belong there. <laughs> Well, and it is funny that Jason Kenny had made a point out of how well behaved everyone was. <laughs> I still, like... I still don't get how not thumping your fists on the desk really is some sign of major change in decorum. It just anyway, whatever. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's apparently where where he draws the line. I, I I'm not sure I, I get it, but anyway, token measures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was um. I mean, there were some fiery questions, some fiery answers. We had every puffball that you could count under the sun as usual, um, three per day from the NDP. So that was kind of a pain. But what are you going to do, I guess? What are you going to do? Reform the system and take away puffball questions. <laughs> I don't know, just a thought. <laughs> you and your crazy ideas, yeah. Breckenridge. <laughs> well, if this is the last session before the election, I mean, you do see a lot of people trying to get in their last words and their their yeah. their last bills. And, and uh, you know, one one thing we should mention from the session, a bill that we were supposed to see that we didn't yeah, see was a bill on conversion therapy. Right. That was, the, in fact, the big talk going into the session that we were going to see this. It was going to be a big mess for the UCP. Were they going to walk out again on a bill on conversion therapy? It didn't happen. And I asked Brian Mason about it and he said, well, there was still some unresolved question about what should be in the bill and what what wouldn't be said it might come forward at a certain point in the future if they do hold a spring session. Sarah Hoffman has she talked said, that she, 
yeah, she was talking. She said something like, you know, keep your eye out and there'll be more to say in the coming days yeah. is what she said, which was interesting. Yeah, so I'm not sure what's going on mm. there. Um, but uh, anyway, it was odd that that didn't, didn't appear on the agenda. Yep. Well, we'll see if there's a spring session. I hope there is. I booked my vacations around based on when it's going to start. So, you know, if there's not, then this just I could have gone to India at a different time. So I personally will be disappointed. Just if you're listening, Rachel Notley and Brian Mason, before you set the calendar, do keep me in your thoughts because the world revolves around Emma Graney. Ha. Let's move on to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, in which we recommend things that we've read or seen or listened to lately that we think you might also like. Dave, you've got your head in your hand. You're still shaking your head at me. Dave's going to recommend the collected works of Emma Graney. No, <laughs> everything revolves around Emma. Actually, um, Edmonton Public Libraries, uh, not wanting to just lend out books, they host a speaker series. Uh, every year and they just released the calendar for their speaker series. And one of the speakers, I actually just started, I'm about a quarter of the way through a book he's most famous for. Um, last year, Netflix premiered a series called Mindhunter. Very good series about the uh, work done by FBI profilers to develop the idea of profiling. Um, and it's a dramatized account of a book written by a former FBI profiler named John Douglas. John Douglas was announced as one of the speakers for the speaker series uh, in 2019. And I'm about a quarter of the way through the book and it's actually a really fascinating read. It's part memoir. Um, I've just gotten to the point where he and his, the senior um, agent that he works with uh, go to see Ed Kemper, uh, who killed a whole bunch. He was the Santa Cruz co-ed killer back in California. Um, he killed his grandmother and his grandfather and his mother and a mother's friend and a bunch of young women um, and just gotten to the point where he, they meet him. Um, the series is fictionalized account of truthful events. Like the, the John Douglas isn't a character, but the book is a really fascinating read so far. It's a really well-told uh, story. It's so good. is he coming to the library? He's coming to talk in the fall, so I think, exciting. 2019. Yeah. Oh. I'm going to get tickets. Yeah, I put that in my calendar. I'm going to recommend a piece from ProPublica. Um, it was in a partnership with the Frontline Dispatch. It's called I Don't Want to Shoot You, Brother, A Shocking Story of Police and Lethal Force, just not the one you might expect. It is a fascinating story out of uh, West Virginia, actually, where the cops, um, you know, it was death by cop, basically. Um, but it tells the story of the police officer who first rocked up to this scene, um, it was an African-American bloke who was holding a gun, turns out didn't have a, any bullets in it. And the cop who originally rocked up, he didn't think that, and there was a white guy, didn't think that this guy was a threat. So he didn't shoot him. He was assessing the situation. But then backup comes along. One of them shoots and kills this guy. And then it's the fallout of what happens to the cop who didn't shoot the guy and what this means for policing in the United States. It is an incredible read and I really highly recommend it. Keith, what do you have for us, mate? Yeah, I'm sort of going back to my health reporting roots here. Um, I'm re going to recommend a piece by uh, Helen Braswell, who's sort of the master of infectious disease reporting, uh, if such a thing exists. But uh, she's she's very very good at it. This is kind of a whodunit, but it's not a it's not a person she's tracking down. She's tracking down a virus, uh, and it's sort of a mystery that unfolds over a, a mysterious virus from uh, just uh, around the the uh, Spanish flu epidemic, uh, 1917, 1918. I won't spoil it. 
but uh, it's an interesting read about uh, kind of tracking down the uh, uh, mysterious viruses uh, past and whether it could come back and, and haunt us in the future. There is a an exhibition at the um, kind of in the walkway between the federal building and the Alberta legislature right now called about um, influenza and when <laughs> the Spanish flu came to Alberta. Yes. Yeah. It's called in flu enza. Yeah. It's, I find that that's just all sorts of clever. I love the name of that exhibit. <laughs> Yeah, so you can go check that out if you're in Edmonton and what's going to do. When you go and look at the beautiful Christmas lights that are up and sparkling every night, it's gorgeous. It's so pretty down there right now. Um, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Chris Varco, Dave Breckenridge, Keith Geron, thank you so much. We will be back again next week with the annual year-end quiz that I'm going to go and start writing the questions now. There's panic in Dave's eyes. Actual panic. I'm just wondering how much money I have to give you to get the answers in advance. hundred bucks? Uh-oh. Come on. Start a bidding war, lads. Start a- <laughs> I think you need to give me a 10-point head start. I was only a columnist starting in October. <laughs> so we'll be back again this time next week with more Press Gallery action. More Alberta legislative fun on the Press Gallery podcast. <laughs> <laughs>